0: To binge all episodes of The Killing Month, August 1978, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode contains adult language and graphic descriptions of violence, as well as references to domestic abuse. Listener discretion is advised.
1: My name is Shannon Girosso, and my father is Gary, was Gary Wayne Crouch. He was murdered by the Johnston gang.
0: Gary Wayne Crouch was an associate of the Johnston gang. Sometimes he did jobs with them, mostly small-time burglaries or stealing cars. To Shannon, The Johnstons, that would be Bruce Sr. and his brothers, David and Norman, were family friends that she visited along with her father. A father that was
1: kind of a cool rebel in the eyes of a little girl. He always had a souped-up car. He was very good at working on cars and stealing cars. I can remember going to Bruce's house with him and playing with Bruce's poodles. Their names were Tina and Tasha. It's like very vivid to me. And... When we used to see Dave, he would give me a dollar. I called him Uncle Dave.
0: Shannon's parents parted ways when she was
1: little, but she still saw her father on a regular basis. I remember he bought me a doll and it crawled. And when it crawled near me, I screamed. I hated that foul, and he felt so bad. And I remember one time he threw a bunch of, like, $101 bills on the ground so I could have them if I picked them up. You know, so I remember some good memories. I do have bad memories. He was abusive to my mom. In
0: addition to being a criminal, Gary was a police informant who secretly taped conversations with people involved in crimes and would occasionally share information with cops if it helped him get out of trouble. It wasn't so much that he was a bad guy trying to turn over a new leaf. It was that he liked to be in the middle of things, to play both sides according to people who knew him. The tapes were kind of like insurance policies, that he would offer up when he needed to make a deal in order to get out of jail. And apparently, Gary was well aware of the
1: risks. Things were getting, I guess my dad was scared and he told my mom, he said, if I don't come out, there's a gun under the seat.
0: On July 13th, 1977, Gary gave the Delaware State Police a statement that implicated the Johnston brothers in several crimes. Four days later, Gary went missing. When he didn't come home, Shannon asked her mother where he was. Her mother told her not
1: to talk about him. So I didn't for a very long time. And then one day I asked my mom, am I ever gonna see my dad again? And that's when he was missing, we had no idea. And she told me not to bring it up again, so I didn't.
0: After Gary had been missing for a while, Shannon's mom married Shannon's stepdad, the man who raised her,
1: the man who Shannon would come to call dad. And I can remember him sitting at the top of our steps with a shotgun every night so nobody would come in and try to hurt us.
0: Right, so there was a lot of fear. How long did that fear go on?
1: For my mom, probably for years. She just had a very good way of hiding it and trying to protect me from it.
0: Several years after Gary's disappearance, Shannon found something that finally forced her mother, Joanna, to talk about Gary.
1: I would say I was about 10. I was checking the mail and something come in the mail. It said to Joanna King for Shannon Pugh, because I was under her name. And I questioned her. I'm like, what are you getting for me? And then I found out it was Social Security checks because my father was dead. So then she went back and told me the story.
0: That's when Shannon found out her father Gary had died years earlier, and he wasn't just killed. He was murdered with a particular brand of cruelty that was far darker than just putting a bullet in someone's head. Assistant Philadelphia medical examiner Dr. Halbert Fillinger said gravel had been found in Crouch's throat, that after being shot and dumped in a hand-dug grave in the woods, Crouch was alive and breathing for at the very least a few minutes, and up to several hours before suffocating.
1: And that's not all. He had dirt under his fingernails, like he had tried to dig his way out.
0: The murder of Gary Crouch obviously had a huge impact on Gary's family. The murder would also end up having a huge impact for investigators trying to uncover all the murders that happened in Chester County in August 1978. Murders they didn't even know had already happened by the time Robin Miller was gunned down in the end of August. I'm Amanda Lamb from WRL Studios, This is The Killing Month, August 1978, the story of a family crime empire that came crumbling down when the bodies started piling up. In the fall of 1978, investigators in Chester County, Pennsylvania, were trying to build a case against members of the Johnston gang for the murder of Robin Miller and the attempted murder of Bruce Johnston, Jr., the son of gang leader Bruce Johnston, Sr. They were also still trying to gather as much information as possible about the gang for stealing expensive farm equipment. The FBI set up surveillance and arrested a man who had stolen a bulldozer and carried it across state lines sounds like a pretty mundane sort of arrest, but investigators had a bigger plan than just arresting someone on a bulldozer theft. Stay with me here. Back in August 1970, a man named Jackie Bain was found dead in a river. Investigators also suspected the man who stole the bulldozer had something to do with Jackie Bain's death so they paid him a visit in jail he didn't want to play ball so my dad the d.a bill lamb told them to go back and offer him a deal to confess to bain's murder and to give up the guy who committed the crime with him because the person they really wanted to get at was that accomplice okay i know the web is getting really complicated here but here's the thing That accomplice, a guy named Leslie Dale, was also heavily involved with the Johnston gang. And investigators believed he was the key to bringing them down. So they needed something they could negotiate with. They needed Dale to be willing to make a deal. And in order to make that happen, they needed the man who stole the bulldozer to turn on Dale. But first... They had to prove that Jackie Bain was, in fact, murdered. Dolores Troiani was the assistant district attorney assigned to the Johnston
2: case. Jackie Bain, his autopsy said it was undetermined as to the manner and cause of death. So we needed to get an opinion that this was a homicide. And we hired a pathologist in New York, Dr. DeMeo. And we went to where Jackie Bain was buried, and we were going to dig up his remains and have Dr. DeMeo do the autopsy. But when the coffin came out of the grave, it was filled with water. I mean, there was so much water, it was like a flood. And the coroner wouldn't let us put the casket in their van. I mean, it was pretty disgusting. And then Dr. DeMayo said, Well, if you clear this area and you give me some privacy, I can conduct this autopsy on the ground right here. So he did it at the cemetery. He did it at the cemetery.
0: But even with the poor condition of Jackie Bain's remains, the pathologist was able to determine that he had blunt force trauma to his skull, which meant he didn't accidentally drown. He was hit before going into the water. It was murder. This would change everything. It was the proof they needed to flip the guy who stole the bulldozer. His name was Richard Donnell. And in turn, he would flip on Leslie Dale. Dale was already in jail awaiting trial for unrelated crimes. Ultimately, Richard Donnell talked to investigators and implicated Leslie Dale in Bain's murder. But Dale didn't know that Donnell had thrown him under the bus. In November 1978, Dolores set up a preliminary hearing where Donnell would testify that he and Dale had killed Jackie Bain. Leslie Dale was in the courtroom that day, but he knew nothing about what Donnell was about to say or about Donnell's plea deal.
2: Here's Dolores. And when I went to do the preliminary hearing, which is the first step to prove probable cause, no one knew that Donnell was going to be testifying against Leslie.
3: And this was absolutely the most dramatic scene in the courthouse during my career, and much better than anything you really see on TV.
0: Bruce Mouty was a reporter with the Daily Local News at the time. He was in the courtroom for this hearing and every hearing related to this case. Bruce says the beginning of the hearing in the morning was pretty routine, but that the prosecutor, my father, D.A. Bill Lamb, came up to him during the lunch break and said,
3: You better come back after lunch. And That's what I get paid for, Bill.
0: When they came back from the lunch break, the next witness was Donnell.
3: And that's the moment that Leslie Dale realized he was going to be hammered with a first-degree murder conviction. And it took him about three seconds to come over the table after Donnell.
2: And Leslie was furious and, you know, was yelling and saying all sorts of horrible things in the courtroom.
3: And they spent about the next 15 minutes yelling, screaming, cursing, threatening each other, threatening each other's family. Police got between them and, and make sure they, they were separated, but it was tense and ugly and dramatic.
0: Bill Lamb had given Donnell a deal plead guilty to Bain's murder, testify that you did it with Dale, and you will get one to three years in prison to run concurrent with your sentence for stealing the bulldozer. Bill said he hated making the deal with the devil, but it was necessary. Because he believed Leslie Dale held the keys to even bigger things, things related to the Johnston gang. He needed Dale’s cooperation. Compared to him, Denell was small potatoes. Denell gave them what they needed to charge Leslie Dale in Bain’s murder. So, now it was time to make a deal with an even bigger devil, Leslie Dale. The person who might lead them to the Johnston gang. Dolores felt like she was in a unique position to get him to talk. Back in 1978, female assistant DAs were rare, and ones assigned to violent crimes like murder were even more rare. And despite Leslie's anger over what had just happened in the courtroom,
2: he wasn't too distracted to notice Dolores. And as Leslie was leaving, he was throwing me kisses. So we then went back and reconvened. What do we do now? And the whole team got together and it came up, you know, well, he was throwing me kisses. Why don't we go to prison and see him?
0: Dolores and Chief Chester County Detective Charlie Zagorski went
2: to the prison and waited for Leslie in the warden's office. And Leslie comes in thinking that I'm there by myself, but Charlie was hiding by the door. (laughs) And uh, so Leslie comes in and he's getting real smart, and then Charlie shuts the door, and then the obscenities (laughs) went because he saw Charlie there.
0: Leslie Dale knew he was stuck, and not just physically. He was about to go down for a murder that happened eight years ago. In order to reduce his prison time, he'd have to give something up on the Johnstons. The Johnstons, who Leslie knew were being investigated for the killing of Robin Miller. And Leslie did have something to offer.
2: You know, we said that if you are telling the truth, we want a body tonight. And it was Gary Crouch.
0: Yes, Gary Crouch. Shannon's father from the beginning of the episode. The man who disappeared and was shot and then buried alive. Bruce Mowdy, who had cultivated great sources as a reporter in Chester County, remembers that night that he got a tip that Leslie Dale was talking to authorities and that big things were about to go down.
3: It was a Thursday evening, the last Thursday, November of 1978, and it was about uh, 10, 10 in the evening because I was watching the show 2020s of how I remember and the phone rang and I picked it up I didn't say a word it was Leslie Dale's out of prison he's talking they have one body out of the ground so I went to Westchester and I looked up on the fourth floor which was the DA's office and the lights were on so I'll go up there and see if anybody's there and I went in the building and that was long before any security the doors were open and Went to the elevator, very slow one, and took it up to the fourth floor. Walked down the hallway, looked into the DA's office, the waiting room there, and there was Leslie Dale, only a few feet away from me.
0: Okay, so let's pause here for a moment. A guy charged with murder is just sitting in the lobby of the DA's office, unattended, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for whatever is going to happen to him next. And a local newspaper reporter stumbles upon him. This could only have happened in the 1970s.
3: So I said, Hi, Leslie. I just, it was so surprising to have this murder suspect unguarded. I mean, I didn't see any, any state police around. And I took about five steps down and kind of composed myself and walked back to talk to him. And he was gone, and there was a state policeman there. And he said, What do you want? I said, I want to know what's going on. I want to talk with the lieutenant. And the trooper said, wait there. And the next person out was Charlie Sigursky, chief county of the detectives. His greeting was, what the fuck do you want? (laughs) He was not very happy to see me.
0: Charlie wasn't a big fan of the press. And this was a pretty fragile moment. They've got Leslie Dale charged in the murder of Jackie Bain. They believe he's got information about other murders that might be connected to the Johnstons. The last thing Charlie wants is a pesky reporter lurking around his star snitch.
3: It's pretty tense. You know, we we're dealing with murders and the victims. This, uh, this was really serious stuff. So I told him what I wanted and kind of repeated a little bit of the telephone conversation. He said, you wait here. So I'm waiting there and see who's next to show up. And it's Bill Lamb comes out. And Bill is always just the gentleman attorney, well-dressed, always together, waiting to go into the courtroom. And that night, Bill's tie was askew. He had mud on his shoes.
0: Bruce could tell from Bill's appearance that something big was going on. But getting Bill to tell him what that something was was not going to be easy.
3: We went back and forth. I saw the mobile crime lab was out there. I said, I'll follow that. He said, do whatever you want. I'll talk to you tomorrow, and of course, being a reporter, I said before deadline. He said yes, before deadline. So I walked back out to the elevator, and uh, one of the county detectives came out, and he was going to put the crime lab away. And so we rode down that elevator, and I'm so glad it's you know slow because I figured I had three floors to get him to tell me where they were digging. And I said, "Pretty muddy out there, wasn't it?" He said yeah, we almost got the crime lab stuck a couple times. And I'm thinking, Johnston, southern part of the county, the only road I could think of was Route 1, the major road. I said, yeah, I was right off of Route 1, right, Joe? He looked at me and gave me a quizzical look. He said, no, it was in back of the Stottsville Hotel. And silently I said to myself, thank you, Joe. At least now I had a place to go. Bruce
0: would eventually write, quote, Police informant Gary Wayne Crouch, 30, of Elkton, Maryland, was the first to die on July 17, 1977. He went on to write, quote, The police found Crouch during the evening hours on November 30, 1978, when Dale led them to Crouch's body in a remote section of Highland Township, just east of Parksburg.
2: When we got to, you know, where he was, where he, the crouch had been buried, we walked up and Leslie and I were standing next to each other and he wanted to talk to me. And he told me just about everything as we walked up to that grave site, And he said, you know, dig here. Did you do the actual digging?
4: Yeah, I mean, yes, I was there. I ended up, I remember, we, you couldn't identify him, but I ended up with the ring, a ring he was wearing that we eventually identified. But I remember i I didn't really live that tremendously far from there. And I remember going home and cleaning it up a little bit so that I could put it into evidence.
0: State police officer Tom Cloud had been called to the site that night. Tom remembers thinking.
4: They're done. They're they're in big trouble. You know, they're done. They They may not know it, but they're done.
0: I remember one really scary detail from this incident that I overheard my dad telling my mother. He said informants told investigators that the Johnstons had been hiding in the woods that night with guns when they dug up Gary Crouch's body. Guns that were aimed at him. Aimed at all of them. Thankfully, nothing happened. But this detail, it always stuck with me. The road to arresting Bruce Sr. and his brothers wasn't clear yet. The prosecution team had more murders to uncover and more questions to be answered. But for Gary's family, the question of what happened to him would finally have an answer.
1: We were living on 41 in Cochranville, Pennsylvania, and my great-grandmother called my mom, and she said, Joanna, do not answer the door, turn off the TV, the radio, and don't answer the phone until I get there. And I remember when she got there, they turned on the TV, and it was all over the TV, and my mom was screaming. And I went out, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, Gary's dead. That meant nothing to me, because I didn't know my dad is Gary, you know? So I'm like, oh, okay, and I went back to my room. Remember, Shannon was just three when
0: Gary disappeared and four when his body was found. And it was years later that Shannon's mom would connect the dots for her. But the legacy of Gary's murder, both for Shannon and for the case being built against the Johnston gang, was starting to take shape. After the break, how Gary's murder went down, and Shannon talks about her life in the shadow of that murder.
2: At WakeMed
4: MyCare 365, we deliver convenience others only talk about. Every day of the year, primary care and urgent care under one roof. Multiple locations, virtual visits, walk-in or schedule an appointment online. From annual physicals and routine care to sinus infection, strep, or the flu, we couldn't be more convenient. Learn more about our kind of care and our kind of convenience at wakemed.org. Way.
0: Leslie Dale told the investigators that he and Bruce Sr. had met up with Gary Crouch on the night of July 17, 1977, at the Wooden Shoe Inn in Jennersville, Pennsylvania. The men told Crouch they needed him to come with them to commit a burglary. Leslie said the whole thing was a setup that Bruce Sr. knew Gary had snitched on him to police about crimes they had committed together. And Bruce wanted him gone. Leslie said Bruce Sr. paid him $3,000 to participate in the murder. They dropped Gary's car off at the Ramada Inn in Chad's Ford and stole a Cadillac. Leslie said that he and Bruce Sr., had dug a grave in the woods for Gary earlier in the day. In Leslie's first version of the story, he was driving the Cadillac. Gary was in the passenger seat and Bruce Sr. was in the back seat. He said it was clear that Gary knew something was up, that he was getting fidgety. Leslie said suddenly, Bruce Sr. shot Gary in the back of the head. Leslie's deal with D.A. Lamb was that he would take them to a body and that he wasn't responsible for killing anyone else other than Jackie Bain. But pretty quickly after this night, Leslie's story started to unravel. Other men who had fenced stolen items for the gang told investigators that Leslie had bragged about shooting Gary. Faced with the truth... Leslie finally confessed, saying that Bruce Sr. was driving and that he had shot Gary in the back of the head, not Bruce. He later famously shrugged off the inconsistency in his story, saying to anyone who would listen, quote, so I switched seats, end quote. The lie cost him his deal. Leslie also bragged that he had handled everything like a champ, but that Bruce Sr. was a wimp who couldn't stomach the sight of blood. The blast had sent blood all over the windshield as Gary slumped in the passenger seat against the side window. Leslie said Bruce's eyes got wide, and he stopped the car and got out. He said he had to force Bruce Sr. to get back in the car, so they could get to the gravesite. They then took money from Gary Crouch's pockets and, according to Leslie, rolled him into the grave with his eyes still open. Remember, the autopsy showed that Gary was still alive when he was buried under piles of dirt. And that hand-dug grave it's unclear whether or not they knowingly buried gary alive but leslie told investigators that they had come back later on bikes to make sure the grave was still intact why would they do that unless they suspected he might not be dead
1: it was horrible horrible to think that that's how he died, and I, I, he wasn't he had a lot of faults, but I know he loved his kids. He always he told people, there's three things that you don't mess with, my kids, my car, and my old lady, and in that order. You know, so it, it was horrible to know that that's how he died.
0: This story, her father's story. Has stayed with Shannon Jeroso throughout her life. In the small rural community where she grew up, she was that girl, the daughter of a man killed by the gang. And even though she knows he was a criminal, she still finds things to hold on to about him small glimpses, memories that roll around in her head like images from an old home movie
1: my mom said he could steal a car in 60 seconds and as a kid growing up I thought that was kind of cool that my dad could steal a car in 60 seconds and she's like Shannon you don't tell people that I'm like mom how many people's dads could do that my dad could steal a car in 60 seconds (laughs) you know so I thought it was cool but she's like don't tell people that
0: Today, Shannon is happily married with a family of her own, children and grandchildren. But in some ways, she is still that three-year-old little girl, waiting for her father to come home. And she shared her painful legacy with her children.
1: My daughter actually did her senior project on the Johnston gang. She had to do something about history, and I told her, I said, what? better. We have firsthand knowledge of this. And she did it. She aced it. They still display it in the high school. And she graduated in 2012 around this area. It's well known because it was around here. So sometimes you hear older people talking about it. I'm like, hey, I know, you know, they killed my dad.
0: I mean, it sounds like it had such such a ripple effect on your family.
1: It did it did. And I try to hold on to all the memories. There are times that my grandmother would tell me, you can't really remember that. I'm like, I do, you know, because it was such a huge part. I feel like I hold on to everything. I remember the very last time I saw my dad, you know, him and my mom were fighting. And he said, I want to see my daughter and she picked me up and she held me up to the door and she said, you see her, it's the last time you're going to see her. And it was because he disappeared a week later but she didn't know that was going to happen. You feel like this has changed. I mean, how you
0: live your life. Has it, has it changed how you live your life? Are you, do you think more about, you know, how finite life is or, you know, how, how has that affected
1: you? Absolutely. You know what? It's always the little things to me that mean the most. And I try to keep everybody close and, uh, you know, I've always just tried to live my life right. You know, my dad got mixed up into some pretty ugly things and I just wish he would have, you know, it would have been nice to have him here.
0: Just like everyone else who hears the story, Shannon finds it so hard to believe that the Johnstons would kill people they had been so close to. People that had been like family to them. People like her father.
1: They had been friends before all of this. They knew each other for years. Like I said, I can remember going to Bruce's house and playing with the dogs. Like, it was going to family, it, you know? It just, it's crazy. They're evil. They're evil. As a kid, I didn't know it, but they are evil.
0: In the fall of 2022, I went to the spot where Gary was buried. And it's a very bucolic spot. It's out in the woods. Right now it's fall and the leaves are changing. And even though it's raining, it's actually very serene, very pretty. It's a dead end road. Uh, There's just a handful of houses out here. Not sure how many there were 44 years ago, but right now... It's just a very quiet, kind of serene, wooded area with a stream running through it. The leaves are changing. There's a light rain falling. And a man was killed here and buried here. After talking to Shannon about her loss and how it's impacted her life, the memory of the visit to the spot where Gary was buried seems even more intense than it was in that moment because now I know the rest of the story that Gary Crouch, for all of his flaws, had a daughter that loved him who, to this day, is still missing what could have been a relationship between a father and a daughter, one that could have grown and evolved over decades if given the chance. With the unearthing of Gary Crouch's body, a criminal case against the Johnston gang was finally coming into focus. At the center of that focus was Leslie Dale. Once a gang member, now a snitch. We'll hear a lot more about Leslie in upcoming episodes. Former state police officer Tom Cloud recalls his very first interview with Leslie Dale. He furiously scribbled notes as Leslie talked, and made a timeline of the case on a yellow legal pad. Tom showed it to me when I interviewed him, and then he read from it.
4: Tuesday the 15th, night, brought the trailer, late PM. And then, you know, I, I wouldn't even know what this means now, but I, I did then. Senior explained problem, junior talking, already testified. Jimmy talking.
0: Taking those notes at the time seemed like a mundane task to Tom, but it would become a blueprint of the Johnstons' criminal activities in August
4: 1978. Uh, Then on the 17th, he was, I I remember this one, he was at uh, what we called Ma Barker's, but Mrs. Johnson's house down on Birch Street in Kenneth Square, and they told him about triple
0: triple murder that is what would come next was a horror even greater than the ones Tom had already experienced in this case the cold winter night that he and his team dug up more bodies and this time they were barely more than kids
4: where he said to dig that's where I dug I hit the thigh bone of the top boy
0: I'm Amanda Lamb, and this is The Killing Month, August 1978.